This is Janine Hayes and Brian Mason of AfroChic, and you're joining us for One Story Up, a celebration of the culture of the African diaspora and the stories that create it. Each month, we sit down with creatives, innovators, and tastemakers from a variety of different disciplines to highlight the intersection and overlap of these fields while elevating and expanding our notion of Black culture, one story at a time. Today, we're in Brooklyn, sitting down with photographer, sculptor, and overall interdisciplinary artist, Fabiola Jean-Louis. Hello, hello. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Oh, my gosh. We're thrilled to have you with us today. We are thrilled to have you. you. And we were thinking about how we learned about you. And I actually still can't recall. I think it may have been via Instagram that I saw your work or a friend had posted your work. Mm -hmm. And I remember that for both of us, it was just like, we need to know this woman (laughs) and know all about what she's doing and what she's creating. Mm -hmm. So, you know, so I guess, Brian, you want to start the conversation? Okay. Um, So, yeah, we like to start just really, really easy. I mean, I remember that when we first met each other, um, we were doing a shoot for a magazine and we had a great time hanging out in your studio. We were first introduced to your work, to your paper mache craftsmanship and to your entire process and uh, has a lot of really interesting conversations. So let's just start by asking, where are you from originally? So I was born in Haiti, um, in Port-au-Prince, and uh, we moved to New York at a very young age, when I was at a young age. Um, and we moved into Harlem, and then from there, Brooklyn. So um, I am a Brooklynite. I consider myself to be, because I've been here since I was five. Okay. Yeah. My yeah, parents still live in the same apartment after all of these years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where in Brooklyn was it that you first moved to when you moved to the borough? Uh, Lefferts Garden. So right off Flatbush and Caton. Okay. Now, I remember you had, like, a lot of creative outlets. We talked about, like, over the time uh, that you've been working and, you know, your path to art. So what was the first one? What was the first creative outlet you remember? Oh, wow. I'm not sure that um, I said this to you when we first met, but honestly, it was dancing. Um, When we were in Harlem, uh, I remember that my parents put me in uh, a program that was free, and it was tap and ballet. And it happened to be that the teacher for tap was Gregory Hines. Oh, wow. Yeah. I didn't know it then, of course. (laughs) I I didn't understand um, the gravity of that, um, but not until later. But that was my first outlet. Um, But I always knew as a child that I was a creative, a maker, because my my father... um, he was always making something. He was sewing, you know, just an amazing um, maker in in carpentry and, and fashion and everything. The man could build a car. Wow. <laughs> wow. So um, it was nothing for me to, um, you know, have access to that because he was just always doing it every day. Um, so I think definitely by high school, I knew that I wanted to really focus somehow in the arts. Okay. Now, do you still dance? In my bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> you just like break out the tap shoes. I know. And like. Well, you know, actually, so dancing um, continued in my life. I, I definitely didn't go the professional route, um, but I was a club kid. Um, so, you know, street kid, club kid. Mm-hmm. You know, I was doing um, dances on the, on the floor at the limelight, Jackie mm-hmm. 60, mm-hmm. you know, when New York was totally awesome (laughs) and I was much too young to do that but um, I did I did continue it for quite a while until I had my first child Mm -hmm. so I mean we talk about this journey and when you first discovered art but how's that path been for you like what's the journey been from the child who was (laughs) learning from Gregory Hines Mm -hmm. to to now to today this fine art photographer and sculptor and all the different disciplines that you explore in your work I love that question um, because it's it's definitely not been a linear journey. Um, it's been quite interesting to start out loving art and wanting to be a maker and then becoming a parent. And then, you know, my Caribbean parents, bless them and I love them. But, you know, um, I think it's something that it's common in our culture that we don't support art the way that we should, Mm. um, and we don't see it as valid. Um, And so my parents 
often told me, you know, you should be, a, you know, go into medicine, be a nurse or, sure. you know, the common thing mm-hmm. that most parents want their children to do. So um, I finally listened. <laughs> I didn't <laughs> think I would, but I would say by my third child, um, as a single mother on, on public assistance, mm. I found myself against a wall and mm. I, I was like, I, I need to do something that's going to feed this family. So yeah. I did enroll in school and I um, was going to be a doctor. I was on the wow. honor roll. I was, I was soaring and um, I was three months away from graduating my pre-med program mm. when I picked up a camera and it was more for therapy, you know, for um, self-healing. Mm-hmm. Um, and to somehow uh, maintain some level of sanity through the hectic schedule of a pre-med student and then going into medical school. Yes, mm-hmm. um, yeah, absolutely. So let's talk a little bit more about that. So what was the therapeutic aspect of photography for you at that point? What did the lens help you to filter out or what did it mm-hmm. help you to see more clearly? Both, mm-hmm. I would say. Um I was going through a really rough time in a relationship that just ended right before a wedding. Wow. Right. <laughs> so I was now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I was I was I was right back to being a single parent again. Um and with so much on my plate already with school. So, um the camera really allowed me to um use a voice that I didn't have to speak out of my mouth. Mm-hmm. So I I found that I could really communicate with with I could communicate whatever I wanted without using my mouth. And that's really where I was at the time. I I think I was still in a state of shock. Um, and I didn't want to have to explain any of it. I was I just like wanted people just see this and feel me. Mm-hmm. Um, but something in that became really powerful mm-hmm. in in um, realizing that I, I was a storyteller. Yes. Um, that's mm-hmm. where I discovered that I was a storyteller and uh, I became obsessed with finding a way to tell a story in a very short, in a very small frame. Mm-hmm. 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 Uh, kind of like a picture that's worth a thousand words. That's right. right. That's right. Yeah. I think people don't realize how um, difficult that actually is. You know, you only have so much space within a camera frame um, mm-hmm. to do what you're going to do and you have only one moment um, to to show that to someone when it's complete, so everything counts, yeah. um, and that yeah. was obsessive mm-hmm. for me. <laughs> and and yeah. you talk about being a mother, mm-hmm. and you have beautiful children. You, if, you. if you're not, you guys aren't in the studio with us, but Fabiola looks like she's 20 years old. And <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> when when we first I saw, 19. I think like your <laughs> oldest daughter, I was like, I don't understand. I yeah, just she's don't 22. understand. <laughs> <laughs> but were your children, I know, have, have been part of your work now. Were they your first subjects? They in any were. Way? I was. Um, I tested it out on them just to get my footing. And then um, immediately after that, I became a self-portrait photographer. And I, d- I refused to call myself a photographer for many years. Sometimes now I still resist, mm-hmm. you know, that, that urge to Why? do so. Why? Well, because, you know, I really look at the camera as just a tool. Um, you know, it, it's certainly not something that I want to be just judged on, mm-hmm. um, which is this tool that I use and for people to see my work from that lens only, um, you know, as a photographer, because there's so much more um, that goes into what I do that I feel like if I call myself a photographer, that's really what everyone wants to call me and see me as. Right, and especially because your work involves so many different layers of work. Um, You're not taking, it's not street photography or spontaneous, and it's not even simply posed models. You're actually working on many different levels. So, you know, let's actually talk a little bit about your process and kind of how it developed. Um, You have this very interesting multi-layered approach um, in which you're not only... Uh, taking photos of black women in dresses, but you're actually making the dresses yourself. Um, how did you come into that process? I mean, so, I mean, really, let's talk about how you went from just using the camera to beginning to bring in all of these other elements of artistry. How did it widen from that point? You know, a need. There mm-hmm. was a need. I had a need. Um, and really, there was no 
there were no finances to to make props, you know, or buy props and all of those things. Um, and also, a lot of that was my father. Uh, it was it was learning from my father how to make something out of nothing. Um, I think the the best story I could tell about that is, uh, you know, when I was eight, I, I ran to my father um, complaining of boredom. And I was really upset about this boredom. <laughs> I said, give me something to do or do something with me or play with me. And he was watching his news, totally not interested. So he looked around and he, you know, within uh, arm's length, he found a, a, a book of matches. Like, what are those little books? Not even a book, a little box. Yeah, mm-hmm. a little match Emptied box. it out so I wouldn't burn down the house. <laughs> and he said, here, so what am I supposed to do with this thing that you're giving me? Make something out of it if mm. you're so bored. That was really my first lesson into there's no reason to be bored. You ha- you have access to things if yeah. you just look. And I came back with a car. I had made a little car out of that box. Wow. So that really does um, show in my work very from right from the beginning that um, I didn't have the money to buy the supplies that I had, mm. I, that I needed. So I needed to find a way to make it. So... For the first major piece I did, uh, Queen of the Butterflies, her entire garment that was that looked like metal armor was made out of duct tape. Wow! Mm. Wow! Um, so, uh, and that's just a practice. Then I've I've continued with since. Um, so, getting to a place of making garments out of paper um, really wasn't the challenge for me. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, I had to learn how to do that, but it was. Um, it was always there, just finding a way to make something. And I love the story of, you know, seeing that, you know, your dad kind of kind of almost giving you that experience, yeah. right? Like, okay, create something. And it looks like I've been on your Instagram. It looks like you're you're diving into sculpture in a different way beyond paper now. And it yeah. looks like, is it ceramics or <laughs> what? what is the next step for you with it's sculpture? paper clay, actually. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I'm still very, very much in love with the material of paper. I think that it's a very powerful um, and simple material to work with. Um, I do also love to work with wire and gold leaf. Mm. As you know, if you if if you look through the page, you'll see um, there's this common love that I have for gold. It's always <laughs> somewhere in my work. Um, so I am working with gold leaf now to apply that to my sculptures. Um, I'm not so sure that I want to continue making life-size paper dresses, mm-hmm. only because I believe that the Rewriting History Collection is now nearing its end or at mm-hmm. its end after I release these two um, last images. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm slowly moving into um, a love of stained glass mm. um, and welding. Oh, interesting. <laughs> so um, how that's going to work into my practice is something that I'm now experimenting with because um, the very beginning of my work is always experimentation, which mm. is why it, it, it takes so many different um, skills. Uh, because yeah, I just don't do happen. one thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah, like, yeah. I have to teach myself everything. So. <laughs> well, before it's over, let's talk about rewriting history yes, because yes. that was an amazing series. Um, it's really groundbreaking in a lot of ways, and in particular, using photography to evoke classic European portraiture uh, through the use of these dresses that you were making out of paper mache. And so we've talked a little bit about how your technique developed, but how did the concept behind rewriting history come about? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I had a title one day, um, rewriting history. And I always knew that I wanted to um, create a project that aesthetically looked very European. Mm-hmm. Um, part of that is just because of my love for the corset. Um, the other part is just because I love going back in time to when things were created beautifully. Things, yeah. you know, people, the artists took time mm-hmm. to create these things. And so I, I knew that I wanted my, my project to have this element of beauty to it. Um, so I kept saying rewriting history, rewriting history, but I didn't have the money to make, you know, the gowns, to buy these expensive fabrics to make the gowns. Uh, and so really it was the title that inspired the material because, wow. you know, thinking about my my desire to not necessarily rewrite history, but... Um, 
to really think about how I could impact the future. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I felt like in order to impact the future, I needed to go back in time in some way in the work, if that makes sense. It does, yeah. yeah. Um, and then thinking about the Constitution, and so one day mm -hmm. it's just like, okay, I have to make these dresses out of paper. Yeah, and, and when you're, you know, and we're talking about the pieces and, you know, I invite people to go and look at them um, because it's more than just the photograph and the the sculpted pieces. It, it invites you to look very deeply because you have a lot of, you know, symbolism that's going on throughout the subjects, you know, that you're you're capturing. I mean, even I remember one of the dresses you had, there was like a necklace, I believe. And even in the necklace, yes. there were these amazing, you know, there was something that was symbolic happening. So, you know, can you talk about those layers that you're creating that really get the viewer to step almost into the piece? Right, right. So that goes back to um, knowing that I have one moment to tell uh, an intricate story. Um, and so in order to work in that small space, the best way to use that is to um, add layers of that story, either putting it in the background or putting it on the model or both. Um, and the other, the other part to that is thinking about blackness um, as this very, very layered thing. Mm. Um, you know, we, or at least I do, often try to unpack what blackness is. Yeah. And, and I always come to this place of, of thinking it's, it's never ending. Blackness is so much, it's infinite, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I really couldn't even um, verbally say exactly what it is. And, and so I, I try to apply that to the work, um, yeah. not only in rewriting history, but in everything that I do, because that voice that I'm, I'm, I'm using is really as a black woman, as mm -hmm. a Haitian um, black woman. Um, and so it's all of those layers that are really showing up in the work because I am also unpacking my own identity, my own blackness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's pretty, that comes through. I mean, this idea that you, you really have on that one moment and in that moment you're packing things that would take an eternity to say, mm -hmm. but without words, there's something evocative about, you know, the way that it hits you. And kind of getting into the story, uh, some of the stories that you're telling in there, um, looking at it, and I, I love looking at it, I really enjoyed writing the article that we have for you in the magazine. Okay. Um, we see that a lot of the series looks like it balances on the issue of black women's bodies as sites for politics, for symbolism, and interestingly for memory, specifically here in the U.S. So why do you feel that black women specifically carry the weight of this intersection? And how can art help us explore the causes and effects of this reality? Wow. Wow, that's a deep, deep question. You know, as a woman, as a woman, I, I know that I feel that weight. And in it's, in it's because I'm a mother, it's because, you know, my black body, I felt, has always been misunderstood. My very presence has often been misunderstood. Um, mm. And just just with that, just with that thing of, of feeling like one's body almost needs to apologize for taking up space mm -hmm. is a heavy weight. Yeah, right? absolutely. Mm -hmm. Because it really questions one's existence and, and one's sense of belonging. Um, so if you take that and apply that to, to a woman who's also giving birth to the world, mm -hmm. That is a very, very complex and heavy thing. Um, and I don't know that that answer really is the entire answer to that question, mm -hmm. um, but I think it's definitely a piece of it. Um, and then the second part of your question, um, would you mind asking me that one again? Um, really just sort of how you feel art can help us to explore kind of like the cause and effect of, of that reality, sort of in this evocative moment, in this one moment where so many things come together in this ineffable way, what does that then begin to teach us about how we came to this intersection where we've placed all of this symbolism? Because these things don't, they don't naturally rest on a black body or specifically on a black female body. Someone put them there. Right. Someone decided that this is what these things would mean. Right. And so the causes of how we got here, the effects of what it does, and sort of the kind of the way forward for how we can deal with it. I feel like does art speak to those different levels? I think that 
I think a responsible artist tries to. I think that is it, it's definitely our responsibility to respond um, and communicate uh, on the things that um, are happening in our environment, in our world, in our society. Um, and for me, um, my job is to remind people. That's what I try to do with my stories and my work. It's, it's not just that I want to create something beautiful and have people go, ooh, ah, look at this. I want you to remember because in order to change the path that we're on, we have to remember, we have to know where we come from. I, I fully believe that. Mm. And healing, um, you know, that also involves memory because I also believe that, that trauma exists on a molecular level mm. also. So if I'm creating something that is, um, uh, you know, having my viewers have some sort of a reaction internally to what I've visually created, then I feel like I'm working on them from the inside, right? I'm, I'm starting those mechanisms of, of memory to be like, okay, I, I, I relate to this, I understand. And it's not just to talk to my black viewers, it's also to talk to white viewers, to people who, who may not have that molecular memory that we do, um, but they know the history. Afrochic Magazine is a lifestyle publication celebrating design, art, food, and fashion from across the African diaspora. The Root says Afrochic Magazine is for us, by us, celebrating our own incomparable influence. Get the magazine that celebrates the culture at afrochic.com. When you were talking about memory and maybe think of representation in your work. Um, one of the things that really connected with us about your work was actually seeing Black Victorians, especially in the rewriting history series, um, which do exist, you know, which which did exist. Um, we just had a conversation. We were at home and we were watching some period piece and they had a Black person in it. And one of our family members was like, oh, that that's just completely unrealistic. And we were like, no. <laughs> Someone said that about, about mm -hmm. my work. Because they didn't know. Yeah. 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 And I think that's been a, a, a common misunderstanding where people have thought that you're, the rewriting history has been almost a reimagining of right. black people into this history. <laughs> and so we've been like, no, there were, you know, specifically yeah. black Victorians. There were actually black people at Queen Victoria's court. And, you know, one story that always stood out to us was um, Sarah Forbes Bonetta. And uh, she was, you know, um, captured the age of six and both of her parents were killed in the uh, process of her her kidnapping and the boat's captain uh, whose name was uh, Frederick Frederick I believe it was Frederick Forbes uh, decided to actually present her as a gift to Queen Victoria like a pet Wow! <laughs> uh, but before he did it he decided to add his last name and uh, the name of his ship which was called the Bonetta so that was how she became Sarah Forbes Manetta. And so she lived much of her life at Queen Victoria's court and then um, married and sort of went off to this other life. But she was just one of many stories that don't get told and that we don't really see, you know, kind of brought into this. And so I guess the question there becomes, you know, perhaps even more important than the history that isn't, you know, attended to. Let's talk about the perception of the history, the perception of history that so many of us carry that makes most of us assume that someone like this couldn't have existed, much less the, the numerous people who actually were there. Um, so for you, what were you looking to accomplish by interfering with this perception of history? You know, sort of what does it do to, to depict a black woman in this sort of lavish European dress? Oh, I was totally vandalizing <laughs> that, that <laughs> false narrative um, because, and that's really what it's about, right? It's, it's taking a rock and throwing it against a big glass window that you know is bull. <laughs> I love that. Yes, <laughs> Complete absolutely. disruption. Total disruption. Mm -hmm. And then I'm going to grab a little bit out of that space <laughs> and mm -hmm. use it, right? Um, I knew like you, uh, that in history, we were there. We've always been present. Um, we have shaped society through and through. 
right? Yeah. So the idea that we just popped up out of nowhere on the map because we, mm-hmm. we came from a boat and then just landed wherever mm-hmm. is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I needed to tell that story of our presence um, while, um, you know, trying to uh, show this ju- juxtaposition of the reality too. The re- not only that did we exist there um, and not getting credit for any of that mm-hmm. um, and being abused and murdered and yeah. all of these things, um, but then also thinking about the what if, you know, what if we weren't treated in that way? Um, would people find it so hard to believe today that we were we were there? Yeah. Right? Wow. And you kind of enjoy the discomfort, right? Like they, because right. there's a, there's like a little, little uh that comes up in the chest when some people see like, you know, black people put into this history. Or oh, put yeah. Into, yeah. Yeah. It, it, it burns yeah. for some of them. It really does burn. And I, I totally enjoy that. Um, for me, I'm like, okay, can I put a little hot sauce on it? After? Right, right, right. <laughs> like, let, let me tell you now, now let me tell you it was real. It was, <laughs> you know, right. Like. It was, it was real. But you know, it's interesting what happens in, in our world. It's almost to say that, um, groups of people who experience trauma, uh, later on in the future, they're, they're somehow erased yes. yeah. in, in all of the things that they were actually a part of mm-hmm. because they're seen as these, these traumatized dogs or something. Mm-hmm. You know, they couldn't have possibly contributed anything, right. um, which we know is definitely mm-hmm. not true. And they yeah. kind of have to be removed because their presence demands the question of responsibility. That's right? right. And so what I love about the work is that it, you know, specifically since we're talking about Victorians, like it, it interferes with the idea that England got away clean. That's right. That, you know, they were able to to become part of this trade, essentially take it over, eventually declare an end to it. But that at the same time the idea that black presence in England is just such a late addition to the culture that it, it like springs up you know, after the 1960s, after the the beginning of the liberation movement, things like this, to go back to a period that gets held up so much as being a pinnacle of their course, of their historical course, and say, no, we were there too. You yeah, know? yeah, and you're all guilty, and yeah. and I see you, and yeah. everyone has to be held accountable mm. to this. It's not just France, it's not just England. It's yeah. you know, so many people had a hand in 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 what happened, uh, and also I have to say this. The other thing that really inspired that that collection is constantly hearing you have to forget, mm-hmm. move on. There's other groups that I know for a fact are not told to forget mm-hmm. what happened to them. In fact, it's you know it's a it's a it's a reminder every year. You know there are monuments going up. Yeah, and as they should, as they should. Mm-hmm. But it's just amazing to me that that. Blacks are always told, forget. And if yeah. you don't forget, you have a chip on your shoulder. You're just, you know, you know, you're, you're, you have a way to, to, to create the magic and stuff. That's all gone. And it's not. Well, mm-hmm. and I think, like you said, you're talking about that trauma on a cellular level. Mm-hmm. The trauma is still with us every day in this country. I mean, with all of us, you know, I mean, our, most of our systems are still founded upon systems that existed during the era of slavery. Indeed. So this idea of forgetting is it's just not even possible. It is re- it's with us each and every day and I think it's more about you know exposing us to the truth. And that's what your work does. It exposes people to the truth. It's beautiful. It is beautiful. Yeah. That moment when you look at it, you're like, oh, this is just beautiful. There's beautiful women in these gowns. And then you get deeper and you're like, wait a minute. Wait, she's saying something here. And you see the piece like the conquistador and you're like, oh, wait, okay. Yeah. And then you look <laughs> deeper and now you have to really think and reflect. And it makes you question a lot of what you know um, and break open, you know, your own, you know, you know, historical gaps that you, you know, have. I want to know for you, how does Haiti fit into the work as a Haitian woman? <laughs> where Where is Haiti in your work? Um, everywhere, everywhere. Um, someone said once, I would say like maybe in the beginning of the, of the project, um, it's interesting that you're a Haitian artist because this doesn't look like Haitian art. <laughs> um, <laughs> And I don't, I don't think it meant that person meant it to be an insult. You know, they they were just stating their obvious, I guess. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And I said, 
Um, well, it's interesting that you don't realize that, of course, it's Haitian art because the hands that created it are Haitian. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. All to say that because that's who I am, because I'm so intertwined with that, with my Haitian identity and culture, it can't, I can't help but um, pour that into the work that I do. Mm-hmm. And I don't believe that my work has to look any specific way to be considered Haitian art. Mm-hmm. It's Haitian art because I am Haitian, yes. because I say so. Um, I do try to add elements of Haiti uh, in my work. So if there's a brooch that was the you know the English emblem, mm-hmm. I'll change that and put a veve on there, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. I do insert Haiti wherever I can visually so that, um, you know, people who know can say, oh, OK, I see what she's doing there with that. But um, Haiti is definitely always there inspiring the work that I do. Yeah. 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 And um, also, I just want to talk a little bit about something that you said before, which I think resonates in, in the Rewriting History Collection. You talked about picking up the camera because you didn't want to explain, mm-hmm. you know, um, you kind of hit the the limit of what words could accomplish and you're looking for another way to do it. And I feel like I, we kind of picked that up in, in this collection because um, you have pieces like uh, Conquistador one, you know, whispers of a revolution. And especially I loved uh, they'll say we enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. And all of those to us kind of seem to speak directly to the power of language kind of what's said in secret and then also what isn't said at all. Mm -hmm. So, and even the the title and style of the collection is kind of speaks to the continuing fight to control the narrative of who and what we are. Um, So what do you feel like is the role of art like in that particular fight, like in in this ongoing narrative, this kind of struggle between what gets said, what doesn't get said and what the things will only whisper? Wow. I love these questions, by the way, and I wish I would get more of the, more questions like these. Um, the role, I think that, I think that it it should be right at the forefront of the conversation. Um, now, it's approach, really. It's it's how one approaches the message that they that they want to give. I find that. Um, there's a lot of art out there, and it's not to put down any other artist, um, but there is art out there where it seems like, you know, the artist just wants to be blunt and give this, you know, in-your-face message, like, blah. It's like a hammer. It's just mm-hmm. like a hammer, right? Mm-hmm. But there's no, they're not taking the, the viewer along the journey and saying, here's this, here's this, here's this. Because I find that the, the, the most impact is really found when um, people are able to break down a message piece by piece, mm-hmm. right? And be like, oh, oh, oh. Mm-hmm. Um, it helps them understand better. Uh, mm-hmm. And I learned that, you know, adults can be very much like children <laughs> in their ability to understand certain things. And that's just because of being hard-headed and all of that. Mm-hmm. And because I, I understand that, I really try to tell my story um, or stories as if I'm talking to children. Mm. And it's, again, not an insult to, to adults, but remove the ego. You know, it's important to remove that ego as an artist and like, oh, you know, I'm going to say what I have to say and people will get it mm. and whatever. Mm-hmm. Or I'm Fabiola Jean-Louis. So whatever <laughs> I put out there, the people will know. You have to take your time and remove the ego and tell the story because you want it to be heard. Mm-hmm. You want it to be understood. Yeah. yeah. And that's really my desire is that I, I, I don't want to isolate anyone. I don't want to make anyone feel like they're not part of the conversation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and the stories that I'm trying to tell is not about just trauma. It's also getting to a place of healing. Yes. Because I don't think that our stories are just that. We're not just, there's so much more than just the pain and the trauma that we've gone through. There's Absolutely. healing. There's there's all the amazing things that we that we do on an you know every day in our lives that should be talked about also. Absolutely. So you're saying you're you're moving from rewriting history. You're almost complete. Yes. With <laughs> that series, um, you've had a show. You had a show in the Bronx uh-huh. at the Andrew Friedman House. Yes. 
um, which is such a beautiful It's a gem in space. the Bronx. Oh, yes. my gosh. And I'm sure we did not get to see it. I, I missed it, and we were very upset and mm-hmm. sad <laughs> that we didn't get to see it. <laughs> They're doing amazing things out there. But yeah. I feel like your work probably looked so stunning in that particular space because yes. it has so much architectural bones that would support That's the right. pieces. Um, and you did a residency recently yes. as well. I'm still I'm still with the Andrew Friedman home. Um, but because I've moved back to Brooklyn, I, I moved to the Bronx for a short time last year just to do the, the uh, exhibition there. Um, as you know, I was, I was very pregnant and there was no way I was taking that, that trip back and forth. So now that I'm back to, to Brooklyn, um, I'm not at my studio in the Bronx as much, but I'm still part of the Andrew Friedman um, home and family. Yes. Um, they're doing just amazing work in, in the community. Um, you know, Walter Poirier, the director, he's really focused on community. He's really focused on what art artists can do mm. and say and um, express uh, what their work. And he's also focused on um, ensuring that the artists keep developing themselves. Yeah. Um, so I feel like that's just a family that I'm always going to be It's a collective. It's a collective mm-hmm. more than just a res- residency program. Yeah. yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. Now, we know that along with art... You also have a really interesting, enduring interest in African diaspora religious practices. Oh, yeah. And I know, like, you and I have had some fun conversations on that. And we've kind of gotten to scratch the surface, but I'm glad <laughs> that, like, I have you here now because I can actually, I can really ask <laughs> oh, you. Oh, no. Right? So, so, like, what what systems have you researched? Which ones are of particular interest to you? And um, kind of what have you learned from from this investigation? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll, what I'll start with is I'm still learning quite a bit. Um, the system that I, or the practice that I really um, enjoy reading on is voodoo. Mm-hmm. Um, it's heavy in information, and it's very easy to get it wrong uh, when talking about it um, because there's just so much to remember. There's so many things. And so I, I find myself constantly going to the books and reading and trying to talk to friends who, who are involved um, to learn more. Um, it definitely is something that even throughout my everyday life, I see hints of. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I think my story with, with that um, and, and spiritual practices and things like that once my my family moved from Haiti and came to America, that immediately created a separation mm. between, you know, me as the the younger generation, my my and my siblings, and the culture, mm. and and it's something that happens a lot in our in our communities, right? Mm. Uh, especially when our our families are immigrants. Um, they came here. They wanted to learn America or English. They wanted to learn American culture. They wanted to. Uh, you know, uh, blend in and not rock the boat. Mm-hmm. But in doing that, um, they kept away so much information. Mm-hmm. Um, and luckily, I was fortunate to learn the language. Luckily, I was fortunate mm-hmm. to um, to really uh, be able to feel like I, I got a good dose of my Haitian culture in at home. But things like voodoo were not ever talked about. Um, even, you know, Soup jumu, which is something that we we eat every uh, New Year, celebration of Haitian independence. That mm. wasn't. I know we ate it. Mm. I didn't know why. <laughs> right. So right. really, as an adult, though, all of this to say that really now at this time in my life, I'm, I am. I feel like I'm just now learning all of those things that I was de- deprived of mm-hmm. as a mm-hmm. child. Yeah. And so you've been studying specifically Haitian. Haitian voodoo. Haitian voodoo. I mean, Mm. as a teenager, I did um, study quite a bit of Wiccan Mm -hmm. uh, and paganism. Um, It was just something to do. I I guess I wasn't there yet and ready to explore voodoo. But now, as an adult, that's really where my focus is. Mm -hmm. Mm. One of the things I've always found so interesting is the, you know, from West African voodoo, the number of different systems... um, 
that have kind of spread across the diaspora. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Haitian voodoo, you have the uh, New Orleans variant of it. There yes. are versions. Spelled differently. Spelled <laughs> differently. And that's the interesting thing, right? They're all spelled differently, yes. right? So Cuban <laughs> is different. Right. Than, Cuban also mm-hmm. is something that I, I look into. Okay. Yes. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Puerto Rican and then even, um, you know, just in uh, Brazil, Candomblé. All of the the relationships and sort of the the connectivity between it, I think that there is a there's a through line in that in the way that these distinct yet connected systems derive from the the movement of this one idea yeah. to different places, different circumstances, in the hands of different people um, speaks a lot to sort of the nature of diaspora itself. Right, and the movement of us. Yeah. The movement of us, because you can see, you you find the presence of these systems where we were, Mm -hmm. where we traveled to, right? And so it's, again, goes back to that conversation, wherever we were, we were influencing. Yeah. Right? We've put our hands on everything, including including those types of systems. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Um, And so the reason why I also bring voodoo into the work that I do and on a very, very small scale. You mm-hmm. know, I'm definitely not not saying that I am deep in and I know everything about it. I don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do bring it into the work because it's to challenge what happens when Caribbean families come to America and then um, you look at Christianity, they pick up Christianity, mm-hmm. they do away with the systems that actually help them survive. Yes. So for instance, voodoo was really the reason why the Haitian revolution was 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 won, mm-hmm. was fought and won. Haiti really used voodoo as a way to to strengthen everyone and inspire. Mm. Um it probably wouldn't have been won without it. Wow. Right? And it's it's sad to think that now if you bring up voodoo to to many people they're like, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> don't talk about that. You know, yeah. and this is black folk. Right, right, They right, don't right. want to talk about that. Yeah. It's all about yeah. just preaching Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, but you don't realize how much this is a part of us yeah. and our yeah. identity. So it's really about trying to get people engaged more in the beauty of that. Yeah, and who, yeah, who we are, yeah. you know. So is that what... Well, I don't know that it actually is Toussaint, but I'm in, in my mind it was Toussaint. So in Whispers of a Revolution, yes, is that what Toussaint is whispering yes. in here? I'm, I'm really sorry yes. that you know, <laughs> you know, as a podcast, we can't just kind of show all of this amazing work. And, uh, you know, it's I'm low-key a little bit obsessed with this collection. <laughs> you know, I'm sorry to hear that it's coming to an end because I think we can tell, like, I've been really like, diving There's in on more. these. There's more. There's so much more. <laughs> yes, I want to hear <laughs> what, what more is about to happen. If you can share with us sort of what is the next step of your journey as an artist, as a creative? Gosh, so, um, you know, it's it's been a very interesting year when thinking about that because... You know, rewriting history came about when I quieted myself and listened to the ancestors mm. on what I should do. Mm. It was a very much in, in a me- meditative space. Um, and of, of course, I'm grateful and thankful that rewriting history um, blew up like it did. Yeah. Um, and putting me somewhere on the artistic map, right? But at the same time, there was a lot of noise that followed. Um, yes. You know, and that noise can really impact the creative process mm-hmm. uh, and keep one from being in a meditative space where you're listening again. And so that's where I am right now. I'm I'm listening and really thinking about the next work that I, I want to create and how much impact I want it to have. Mm. So, you know, I have been looking at, um, like I said before, stained glass, mosaics, not that I will um, use glass in my work, but it's something about the aesthetic um, and thinking about church yeah, and thinking about sacred space, mm. um, as well as how, as, as a people, we have used spirituality to get through some of the hardest times in our lives, mm-hmm. and we continue to. So those are the things that I'm looking at to help inspire the next body of work. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but it has to it has to do what we write rewriting history did, which is say something. Right. I love the um, idea that you know that you brought up the idea of the, like the responsible artist, um, and the idea of like feeling that responsibility because it kind of changes the the point of the work. Sometimes you'll you'll see where it's it's kind of left out there in limbo. The question of like, well, I can't say what my work is about. It's about what you see. Um, this kind of reverses that and saying like there is a specific story that there is to be told even you know interestingly enough the idea of removing white gaze from our spirituality right Right. both are you know the practice of you know the continuance of traditions that move from Africa um, even the experience of Christianity you know kind of like remembering that Christianity before any kind of European encroachment sort of moved down into North Africa and mm-hmm. Egypt and, and Ethiopia, Haiti. like yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, all on its own. Everywhere. Right. It, it moved all on its own and then later became this tool of white supremacy and oppression and all this other stuff, you know, after essentially experiencing its own victimization, I guess, because it's not originally a European religion when right. you actually go back and look at it. So, well, we have um, to so all that you said, mm-hmm. you know, those are things as artists that we we have to be able to talk about and should talk about and process thought. I think anyone who says, you know, you tell me what you see, is just being lazy. (laughs) That's just laziness. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. One other question I know we wanted to ask you was, as you were talking about the noise that was happening, you know, after your show in the Bronx, and there's been a lot around black art. There's a buzz, you know, yes. there is a lot of collectors. <laughs> As I roll my eyes when I say that. <laughs> you know, a lot of people are collecting, you know, black art. There is a hunger for it on the market. There's also concern about where it's going, who's yes. buying it. Um, you know, the idea of also should black art be public? Should it be in public spaces instead of bought up by private collectors and just sort of maybe put away? But how do you feel? as this this sort of trend mm-hmm. is happening. And I guess as a responsible artist, what do you think your responsibility is in a moment like this where our work is, you know, becoming of more value by outside communities? Um, but also, I guess there's also this tension about that, about what's happening at this time in the art world. Right, you know, I'm, I'm so many different ways. I feel different things about, about it um, in one sense we deserve the acknowledgement yes right we deserve to get paid for the work that we do um we are shapers of society and um that acknowledgement really should be there now that said (laughs) i think that um for me as a black artist what i i most mostly try to do is find out who's collecting my work Mm-hmm. You know, it's not always easy because I'm also represented. Um, so I can't control the clientele that's walking into the gallery and purchasing the work. Um, and it's fine, again, to sell my work because I need to pay my bills and feed my family too. Um, but if I'm selling directly to a collector, I want to know more about them. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I want to know what's this for, you know, what's what's your what's your plan for the work and and this and that. I think that's part of the responsibility is is knowing a little bit more about where the work is going. People change their minds about what they do with art after they buy it, right? Yes. They can turn around and sell it and do whatever they want. Yes. Mm-hmm. But we still should ask questions um, as we're as we're, we're we're sharing it with others. Um, now it angers me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it really angers me this um, trend, quote unquote, right. trend of of black art being eaten up right Mm -hmm. because what it suggests is that it's just a blip Mm -hmm. in the system oh it's you know it's gonna come and it's gonna go yeah never mind that we've been creating forever (laughs) right (laughs) right forever art's a part of culture (laughs) right Right. but Mm -hmm. so this is what the art industry does to black artists or artists of color you know it's what happened to Basquiat it it Mm. took what they wanted from him it devoured him. Of course, he had his own responsibility to live how he needed to live. Um, but it, really, that industry ate him alive, mm-hmm. right? Um, and it did so because at his time, he was also one of the very few black artists that were on the scene 
and everyone was just like, who is this, who right. is this caveman, quote unquote, <laughs> right? Now you're not hearing the caveman part, but it's, who are these black artists? You know, it's, mm. it angers me that um, it almost seems like a blip. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think that's what concerns people is really that. Mm. Absolutely. One other thing I I wanted to, because you talk about the storytelling aspect, I do think that one of the ways that we as Black people can preserve, you know, our culture is art, absolutely, and and writing, literature, Mm -hmm. books. Um, But have you ever thought about turning your work into a book? Yes. <laughs> it's coming, I want it. I promise. <laughs> it has been a goal since the beginning of rewriting history to create a book. Um, you know, I did listen to my 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 gallery. It said, "Hold off, wait, see what the collection is going to do. Let everybody collect." Which it's almost sold out. So I'm very grateful for that. Um, Congratulations! Yeah, that is amazing. <laughs> it is. <laughs> But uh, now I'm at the place where I, I, I really want more people to have access to the collection, those who couldn't uh, afford to buy the prints. Yes. Um, I feel like I, I really want people to be able to have something of it. Mm-hmm. And so I am in the process right now of, of speaking to my printer and whoever else is in the, the group to, to create this, this book. Okay. Wonderful. That's amazing. I That's want amazing. The book, yeah, so. I want the book. I, I want, want the piece. pieces. I, I have a list of the pieces I want. Um, there's basically all of them. Basically, it's all of them. But I mean, there's some that I think uh, there's, there's like a hierarchy yes, of like yes, yes. what I want to do. Um, and obviously, we could sit here and, and talk about this forever and ever. But um, run out of time. So I know. <laughs> uh, we like to end our interviews with something that we call the A list. And oh, so fancy. the A is for <laughs> activism, it's for action, it's for affirmations, all kinds of positive interactions, right? Yeah, yeah. So is there anybody, a person, a group, or an organization out there doing the good work that you think all of us should know about? Oh, wow. See, now I'm going to have to be biased. <laughs> <laughs> this is the time. <laughs> My husband, my husband, Aww. Nick Cannell, um, he has an organization called Combit Music, um, which really works with Haitian musicians, um, one being G-Ship. And um, what he does is really try to connect Haitian artists um, to any type of opportunity here in the States um, that would, you know, really just get them the attention and or a lot of times it's bringing them to America for the first time, which obviously we can see that is a, is a big deal. Yes, um, yeah. And so it's really opening the door to Haitian artists um, in music in a way that really not many people are, are, are doing and paying attention to. And I think wow. that's a really big deal, um, especially because I'm Haitian. That's wonderful. Um, yeah. And my people definitely need that. So, you know, I love I love the work that that he's doing, that he's done. Oh, that's so yes, wonderful. Music. <laughs> All right. We will thank definitely you. check it out. Well, thank you so much, Fabiola. Yes, thank you for coming to hang out with us today. You can check out her work at Fabiola Jean-Louis on Instagram and follow us at AfroChic and hashtag One Story Up for more discussions on art, design, travel, and more. <laughs>